0: follow along with us, which I would highly encourage. If you just lift up your hand, the ushers are making their way quickly through the aisles and they'll drop one off discreetly in your lap so that you can follow along. We're in Romans chapter 2. I don't know why it feels extra quiet in here tonight. Does anybody else feel like that? Could you guys make some noise? I'm just a little uncomfortable right now. Thank you. There's life. There's life. I didn't hear it, but uh, we'll keep it that way. Let's again just ask the Lord to bless our time. And while I'm praying, you can pray for me, because I've got this little uh, cold thing going here, and you know, so. But Father, we just pray that you would uh, meet with us, Lord. You said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Lord, you said that the the word of God will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the thing that you sent it to do. And so that's our prayer, Lord, tonight, that you would allow your word to produce the thing that that it is intended to produce as we hear it tonight. We pray that you'd open our understanding, that you'd give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us corporately as well as individually. Lord, that you would give us understanding. Help us, Lord. And that your spirit, Lord, would draw close to us. Lord, we need to be touched by you. We don't want to have a a, a, a lesson, Lord, a theological um, discourse. And, Lord, have facts and knowledge. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, we want to know you in a real and living way. And so we pray, Lord, that, the, that this word that we hear tonight, Lord, would serve that purpose above all else. Lord, that would bring us into a fuller understanding of who you are. And it would help us, Lord, in our relationship with you. So we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, as we should well know by now, one means whereby a man or a woman can be justified before Almighty God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the light of the world. And he said, no one comes to the father, but through me. He didn't say that he was a way. He didn't say that he was one of many lights that would light the path of men, but he's the way. There's only one way to go to God. Peter said in the book of Acts, as he was preaching, witnessing to the Jews there, he said, there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And thus again, there is one way whereby a man or a woman can be justified before Almighty God, and that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore... From God's vantage point, where he sits enthroned in heaven, as he looks across the spectrum of humanity, he really only sees two different types of people. He sees those that have been justified before him and thus are in a right relationship with him, reconciled through Jesus, his son, and those that aren't. There's only two groups of people as far as God is concerned. Those that are justified, reconciled, redeemed, and those that aren't. The book of Romans that we're studying as we go through this on these nights is all about what it means to be justified or reconciled before God. Now, the section that we're in as we're examining chapters 1, 2, and 3 concerns those that are not justified, Paul is talking to us about the world that has not yet come to Christ, that has yet to see their need and surrender their lives to him to be saved. And and he's giving to us an understanding. He's telling us about those people, those that are not justified, with the intent of also making them aware of their need. Seeking to show them that their position, where they are, that they are without Christ and therefore they are not in fellowship. They're not under the blessing of God, but they abide in darkness. And thus their need, the only need that they really have from God's perspective, is to be put back into that right relationship with him. And so the point that Paul is making as he takes us through these first three chapters is summed up again. It's in chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That sin is what separates man from fellowship with God. God made Adam and Eve in the garden. It says that he walked with them in the cool of the day. But there was one thing that they were not to do. They were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And in that day that Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, disobeying God and bringing sin upon themselves and upon the whole human race, their fellowship with God was broken. They no longer could hear his voice. They could no longer sense his presence. They could no longer experience his his breath, his closeness, his reality. And thus death set in. Misery fell upon all of the human race. And every descendant, every grandchild, every person that would come through them all the way down to you and me today, we are born into this world separated from God, outside of fellowship with him. And it isn't until we see our need that we recognize our condition and see our sinful state for what it is that we then can be first, you know, then brought back into this relationship and reconciled to God through Jesus' Son. And so Paul, in these first three chapters, as he is explaining to us in totality what it means to be justified by God, he's first laying for us the groundwork of saying, look, you have this great need. That you are separated from a holy God because of your sin. And you must come to the realization that that's your position. That's the reality of the situation. That you're not in fellowship with him. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now this is always the first step in sharing with someone the gospel, the good news. The redemption story, if you would is that people must understand that they have a need for salvation. This is also what's lacking in a great deal of preaching today. Many surveys and polls are taken on those that attend evangelistic crusades and those that raise their hand or come forward in church services. And, And people are astounded at the numbers of people that will raise their hands or come forward or make a confession, but yet one year later they're not walking with christ they're not continuing on and they've for all intents and purposes they've backslidden they'll still call themselves a christian they'll still profess that they've gotten saved but yet nothing has really changed in their lives they haven't grown closer to god they haven't you know expressed any of the fruit that comes from someone who who's been inhabited or indwelt by the living god something's wrong And what many have traced it to is that in much of the presentations of the gospel that are given, people are never really put face to face with the fact that they're sinful. They're told that if they come to Christ, that they'll experience new life, that they'll have a peace that passes understanding, that they'll experience the love that passes knowledge, that all the great and precious promises of the Bible are credited to their account and that they'll inherit eternal life and all it takes is for you to come. But yet they're never met face to face with the fact that they are vile, wretched sinners. That like Isaiah, the prophet said that your most righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. That when Isaiah spoke to the people, he said, come, let us reason together. He said, your sins are as scarlet. Your whole head is sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Your whole body is laden with putrefying sores. He uses very picturesque language to describe the state that we're in. But he says, though your sins are as scarlet, though they are red like crimson, they can be white like wool. They can be as white as snow, if you will come. But see, they can't be washed white as snow. They can't be white like wool. Until you first realize that they are red like crimson. That you are sick and you are in dire need of a savior. That's why when Jesus was speaking to the crowd there on the Sermon of the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. He said to the multitudes, the first beatitude. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Because you cannot become a citizen of heaven or inherit God's eternal kingdom for you until you first realize how poor in spirit you really are. That you have nothing to offer God, that there's nothing in you or of you or because of you that has attracted him to you, but you are completely and utterly, totally, spiritually bankrupt. And it isn't until someone comes to God with that on their plate, saying, oh God, can you fix this? That God then can say, yes, you're a perfect candidate for what my son did. The self-righteous, those that think they're okay, those that suppose that they have no need, can never come to God. They'll never receive, they'll never understand the grace. And that's what Paul's getting at here. That no one can be made right with God before they first recognize that they need to be. And Paul is taking the time here in these first three chapters to conclusively prove to us that there is no one that can meet God's standard of righteousness. He divides humanity into three groups as he goes through this section. First of all, in chapter 1, taking the heathen, the godless Gentile, Those that don't regard God, that have no standard, that have no consciousness of him, have no desire for him, that just live completely according to their own lusts and desires. And he goes through and he makes the point and he says that they've sinned and that they're accountable and that they're without excuse. And we looked at them last week. The second group that Paul takes on is the moralist or the hypocrite, as he'll allude to them as those that have a standard. that, that will testify that there is a such thing as a right and wrong, but yet they won't acknowledge the God of that right and wrong, and they don't even live up to the own standard that they set for themselves. And he concludes that they're guilty before God. And then the third group is the Hebrew, or the Jew, as Paul calls him in the text, but it alludes to both the Jews then, and also to anybody who has a form of religion today, but that doesn't really know God, but they trust in their religion or their works to save them. And he takes that good person, that the world will say they're a good religious person. And he concludes, he says, look, this person has just as much of a need for a savior as anyone else. So three categories that Paul divides the world into, the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew, or the heathen, the moralist, and the religious self-righteous person. Now, as we get into chapter two, he's going to go after, if you would, the hypocrite, And the Jew, or the, you know, the moralist and the religious person as we get into this. So, chapter 2, we begin. He takes on the moralist. And the first thing that he does as he gets into this section is that he gives to us the identifying characteristic of the moralist, or the hypocrite, the person that he'll call the the hypocrite. He says, therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. The first identifying mark of someone who's a hypocrite or a moralist that falls short of God's righteousness, the way you identify them is that they are a very judgmental person. That's how God and Paul look at these types of people. Isn't it amazing how bad our sin looks on other people? I mean, you know, maybe you've never thought about that before, but if you do think about it for a minute, you'll become very disgusted with yourself. Because our sin really, I mean, we excuse it on ourselves. We have all kinds of reasons and justifications for why we do what we do. But when we see somebody else sin in a way that we have a propensity to fall or fail, we come down real hard on them in our mind. And our sin looks real bad on other people. I always think of David when it comes to this. Here's a guy that God took from poverty to the palace. This man that was nothing. He was the youngest of seven or eight brothers in a poor family there in a small town in Bethlehem, you know. And he's just keeping the sheep. And God sends the prophet to anoint this man. And you know the story. God raises him up ultimately through literal hell to become the king of his nation. And God blesses David and just opens the windows of heaven on him, gives him sons and daughters, lands and fame, gives him a heart of a righteous king and just does so much for this man, David. But David, as he was established and he was set in his place and things started to go really well for him and for the nation, he started to kind of pull back on the throttle, if you would. His pursuit of God began to wax a little bit cold and where David at one point would have been on the front lines going into the battle, leading the nation and inspiring the people. He began to stay home and let Joab and some of the young guys go forth to the battle and and he was back in Jerusalem and he got into trouble. He was up on top of the palace and he was looking out one evening and he saw a young woman bathing herself on the roof. And he sees this young woman out there and he, you know, is hit with an arrow of lust and it does its work in his life. His shield isn't there. And, and and you know, the story David calls for, and he commits adultery with this woman, Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant and Oh, what tangled webs we weave, you know, and all this kind of begins to happen. And now he's got a problem because now not only has he compromised morally, but now this is going to turn into a big political scandal. Uriah, this woman's husband is off in the battle and he's going to come home and he's going to find his wife pregnant. And the whole thing is going to erupt. Everyone's going to find out. And so David, rather than getting right, repenting and turning back, now he's got to go a step deeper. And so he sends for Uriah and brings him home and, you know, gets him kind of you know, drunk a little bit, and then he tells him to go home and spend some time with his wife so that he can, you know, kind of make it look like it's his baby, Uriah, her husband. And that failed because Uriah turns out to be a noble man, and his rationale is, well, how could I go home and be with my wife when all my brothers are out on the battlefield so he sleeps on David's steps? And when David wakes up in the morning and there's Uriah, he says, did you go home? He goes, no, I can't go home. That would just not be right. I just can't do that. I mean, there's a battle going on. And so David writes a letter and basically it's Uriah's death certificate. It's a letter to Joab, the general, and he's saying, put Uriah on the front lines and make sure that at the heat of the battle, the people withdraw from him, make sure that he dies. And then he gives it to Uriah and says, bring this to Joab, please. And basically he gives Uriah his own death certificate or, you know, death orders to bring to the general. And so Uriah brings the letter and Joab does as he's told and Uriah is killed. And as far as David thinks, you know, now he takes Bathsheba and he kind of tucks her into his palace, his harem, if you would, and he thinks the whole thing's covered up and a year and a half goes by. And after a year and a half, and the Bible says that, that, that what David did and then it says, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And a year and a half goes by and the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I've got an issue I need to discuss with you. And David says, okay, say on. And Nathan says, David, there's this, there's this guy out in the kingdom that, you know, this poor man who had this one lamb that he just loved so dearly and he just loved this lamb. I mean, he just, it was like a pet. It was more than just a farm animal. He let it sleep in his house. And I mean, it was just everything to this man. And next door to that poor man was a rich man who had so much cattle, sheep, and the whole nine. And the man, the rich man, had a guest. And instead of going to his barn and taking one of his own sheep, this rich man went to the poor man's house and took his one lamb that was dear to him and killed it and gave it to his guest instead. What should be done to such a man, David? And you know... Great story, the whole thing, but the thing that strikes me is David's response as Joab brings this, or I mean, as uh, Nathan brings this thing to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, it says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Now, pause for a minute, because a lot of times, you know, we read the Bible and we look at what it says and we just kind of take it for what it says, but think about this for a minute. You're the king of the whole nation. And all of a sudden you hear the story about this little old man and his little lamb and you're the king and and look at David's reaction. It says that his anger was greatly kindled, that you could kind of see the redness come over his face and the vein begin to bulge out of his head, you know, and his pulse begin to show in his neck as he begins to think about this thing that's going on. Now, honestly, if I were the king, I'd be like, just, would you just write the guy a check? Give him a new lamb. I mean, take care of this thing. I mean, it's a little lamb. Who cares? But there's something else going on within David here. See, doesn't our sin look real bad when it's manifested in someone else? David's anger was greatly kindled within him. And he said unto Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. What? And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, listen, the law stated that if you took something that didn't belong to you, that you were required to restore fourfold. That the law was that this rich man should give this poor man four lambs for the one lamb that he took. But David takes it 20 steps further and he says, this man shall surely die. Now The law doesn't say that. That wasn't God's heart. That wasn't God's sentence. But there was something going on within David that caused him to thunder forth and to give this sentence to this man that he shall die because of this thing that he's done. And then Nathan, probably the hardest sentence that he ever has to say in his life as he looks at that king, he says, David, you're the man. You're the one that did this thing, David. You just condemned yourself. He that judges, Paul writes to the Romans, condemns yourself. For you that judge, you do the same things. Hypocrite. David, you're the man that's done this thing. It's your fault. David was guilty. Isn't it amazing how merciful we are towards those that sin in areas where we don't struggle? I mean, you know, I go to work, I work in the city, and I work with guys, like, you wouldn't believe the guys that I work with. They've all served time. I mean, many of them have, like, sco- battle like, literally scars across their face. Like, you'd see these guys, and you would cross the road. Amazingly, they're some of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. They're, they're, they're just great. They're easy to be around. They're down to earth. They're friendly, you know, and, and all this stuff, and we, we talk all the time, and when they tell me the things that they're, they're going through, I never go, oh, man, What? You, you've done heroin. You've done what you've, you know, and I don't even say the things that I hear, the things that they tell me, but I never find my anger being kindled. Like you're, but you know, a couple weeks ago, I went to a pastor's conference and though I'm around all these other pastors and you know, it's amazing how comfortable I can be around people that have sin. I don't struggle with, but then I get around pastors and us pastors. We're all like, we're all the same. And, and all, it's like, Oh gosh. I hate pastors. <laughs> you know, there's just something about being around, you know, and yet, you know why it is because they're just like me. We're all crazy. We're ambitious and we all have these certain like common characteristics and things about us, you know. So why is that? Why? Because our sin looks really bad on other people. But yet if we don't struggle with it, we're merciful. It doesn't bother us at all. I, oh God, God will forgive you. God's with you. But then when someone tells me something that I'm struggling with, I'm like, oh, that's bad. You're in a lot of trouble. You know, you really need to get that under the blood. That'll destroy you. You know, and It's amazing how it is, isn't it? And yet that's what Paul is saying here. He says, you that judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. Next time you find yourself coming down on someone, look in the mirror. Because most likely the reason why it's heavy on your heart or that it's affecting you the way it is, that your anger is being kindled and you find yourself saying you're worthy of death is because you're the one that's guilty of that very thing. Jesus said, why is it that you behold the sliver that's in your brother's eye, but yet you ignore the beam that's in your own eye? I remember one time this guy, Dave McConaughey, he was this big old guy. And I don't have a lot of memories, actually I have a lot of memories, not a lot of good memories about this guy, but I have one memory about Dave McConaughey. I remember as a brand new believer, he came up to me, this big old man, looked like a teddy bear. And he came up to me and he said, concerning that verse, he goes, you know, you know what I realize?" He goes, when I look at someone else's sliver in their eye, I usually realize that I'm just trying to get the tip of my beam. He goes that their sliver is just the tip of my beam. You know, that we got this big, huge thing in our own eye, but we're trying to remove the speck from our brother's eye. It's amazing. What did our mothers tell us? They said, anytime you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you. That's what Paul is saying here. It's amazing. Your judgment condemns yourself. But in verse 2, he says that we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against those that commit such things. That God's judgment is true. That when God judges, it's righteous judgment. When we stand before the throne of heaven, Revelation chapters 19 and 20, It tells us there that the multitude of those that are redeemed, that are sitting around the throne, as they cast their crowns before God, they say these words. They say, True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. Many of us have things in our hearts that we say, You know, I don't know if I agree with how God handled situation A or situation B. I don't know if it was fair how God judged you know, my grandmother or my brother or whoever, however God did it. But when we're there and we see perfectly and we understand the way God understands, the only thing we'll be able to say is true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. That his judgments are absolutely pure. That there is absolutely no um, corruption in the judgment of God that he gives. But our judgment, when we judge, it's nothing but a sign of hypocrisy. That's why it says, judge not lest ye be judged. That's why Paul would write and say, judge nothing before the time, because you don't have all the facts. You don't understand it. And therefore, your judging of somebody else is nothing but an indication that you're guilty of the very same thing. That's what the scripture declares. And thinkest thou this? And so now Paul gives the rationale of this person, this hypocrite, this moralist, the person who looks at other people and puts them under and sets themselves on a righteous pedestal over someone else. He says, This is the way they think, this is their rationale. He says, Do you think this, O man, that judges them that do such thing and doest the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? The, the, that somehow by you putting yourself above someone else, and you know that's human nature. You know, we have this way that, that what we do when we come into a group of people naturally is that we'll find the thing that we are better at or the, the, the area that we excel and that that's what we'll think about and we'll kind of put everybody down under us in our own mind. We'll find our little way, our little place, and that's our comfort in a group of people. We'll judge them, we'll put them under. Or we'll do it self-righteously if that's our, if that's our thing, that we're better than they are, that we behave better, we behave differently. We're more upright than they are. And Paul says, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? You do the same thing that they do. Or, he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? That the other thing is the patience of God. That he's so patient. He says that they sometimes think that they're going to escape the judgment of God, that somehow they'll get out of it. And he said the other rationale of the moralist or the hypocrite is that they think that God doesn't care. They think that because God hasn't judged their behavior yet, or because God seems to be looking the other way as they live a compromised lifestyle, that that must mean that God accepts their behavior. He's saying, do you despise the riches of his goodness? not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance, you think that just because God hasn't judged you yet, that because God is being patient with you and he's forbearing and and long-suffering with your issues and your sin, that that means that God accepts it? Paul's saying your rationale is corrupted. It doesn't work. Many people mistake God's patience for God's acceptance. That because he hasn't judged... That means he must approve. That's a horrible error. You don't want to fall into that one. Look at the words that it uses describing this patience, this goodness of God. It says that you despise the riches of his goodness. The word riches implies that there's an abundance. There's an abundance of what? First of all, goodness. That God is good. And because God is good, God wants good things for you. God doesn't want evil. God doesn't want to see bad things happen to you. Many people think that God is in heaven with like this holy nine iron and he's just waiting for you to screw up so that he can just do, you know, chip shot you right into hell or right into tribulation or right into anguish. Oh, just step out of line. I just can't wait. I've been trying. I want to try out this new one, you know, kind of a thing. But no, the Bible says that he's rich in goodness, that his thoughts, that his desire, what he wants is for you to come to repentance. He wants you to get right so that he can show you his blessings. He doesn't want to judge you. And so he's patient because he's rich in goodness. It also says he's rich in forbearance. Forbearance means that he already knew for means that he foresaw it and bear means to bear with it. So he's forbearing. He saw it ahead of time and he's bearing with it because he wants to see you come to him. He's giving you room to repent. He's giving you room to get right. So he's rich in goodness, rich in forbearance, and he's rich in long suffering, which is basically King James for patience, that he's very, very patient and he wants you to come to him. And so the fact that he hasn't judged you or, you know, tossed some kind of tribulation upon you or done some, you know, thing drastically to try to get your attention is because he's just hoping that his goodness is going to bring you to the place of repentance It reminds me of that story, that debate that took place on that college campus where, you know, the Christian was debating the scientist over the existence and the reality of God. And and the Christian kind of gave his points and gave his, you know, discourse and his spiel. And then the scientist got up there and angrily began to curse at how, how stupid this Christian was for believing these primitive and non-scientific ideas and he, he just bashed him over and over again. And, And, and he got so up in a frenzy that finally he said, I'm so certain that there is no God that I give God almighty permission to strike me dead right now. And I'll wait here for five minutes for God to strike me dead. And if God doesn't strike me dead in five minutes, then that proves that there's no God. And then he quieted himself and he stood still in that silent auditorium for five minutes. And after five minutes was completed, the man still alive and still standing there looked out at the group and he said, see, that proves conclusively that there is no God. And he got down and he sat in his seat and the Christian sitting there in the front row stood up and got behind the podium and he looked at that scientist right in the eye and he said, sir. That does not prove at all that there is no God. What that proves is that even the most vile and wretched of sinners cannot exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. (laughs) He's long-suffering. The Bible says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. That's true for the heathen, but did you know that that's also true for you and me? For those of us that are saved? that we've already been brought back into a right relationship with God, I experience his goodness. I love his presence. I wouldn't trade the blessing of God on my life for anything. And and when I think about the fact that if I sin, you know, do something that that really is going to wreck things, you know, in some way, or if I find myself going wayward, I begin to think about this. Lord, I don't want your presence to be gone from my life. Lord, I don't want to not hear your voice or hear you speaking to me. Lord, I don't want to sense that you're not leading me or, or, or have things fall out a certain way. Lord, I'm addicted to your goodness. I'm addicted to your mercies. And it leads me to repentance. It causes me to get right. It causes me to search my heart and say, Lord, what is it that you're doing? I have to confess, I, uh, I was going a little fast <laughs> on the Deegan, you know, going down. And sure enough, I come around the corner and, you know... <laughs> the blue lights flashing in the mirror, you know, and he was merciful, God, he was merciful, and so was the trooper, he, um, he said, do you know, do you know why, why I'm pulling you over, yes, of course, I know why you're pulling me over, you know, and I always try to be honest with them, which usually is a good thing to do, you know, he said, Gee, why were you going so fast, and then, then I just, you know, I wanted to say, well, sir, I was on the phone, and, uh. <laughs> He said, well, do you know your inspection is up? Yes, sir, I know my inspection is up, you know, and... He said, okay, what do you want a ticket for, speeding or your inspection? I said, oh, can I have both, please? (laughs) No. (laughs) I said, I'll take the inspection. So he gives, he gives me a ticket, you know, for my inspection. And I was grateful for that, but you know, I continue and I go on to work and see, I don't really get too convicted for speeding, but I get really convicted if I get a ticket. I know that's completely inconsistent. And it's a horrible rationale. I'm not preaching that or, or kind of condoning that, but, uh, it's just kind of what happens if I get a ticket, like I'm really upset, you know, like, it's kind of like Jeremiah said to, when he was indicting the nation of Israel, he said that you guys repent like a thief when he gets caught. You're only sorry because you got caught, you know, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's how I felt. I was just like, oh, God, I really blew it, you know. Oh, God. And, and then the Lord, because he's so good, and that's where I'm going with this is goodness. Am I red? Because I'm embarrassed talking about this. But, but the, Lord, the Lord spoke to me, and he said something to me that he has said to me before, but I forgot. And when he said it the second time, I just felt so loved because he's just so good. He said to me, he said, Nick, if you don't obey the laws of men because you don't understand or agree, then eventually you won't obey my laws either when you don't understand or agree. And I said, that's right, Lord, you've said that to me before. And then he said to me, he gave me a verse. I haven't read this verse in years maybe i don't know but it's from nehemiah chapter 8 when god poured out his spirit upon a repentant nation and they were weeping in their heart because of their sin and they were really upset because they saw the they saw how guilty they were and god looked at the nation there in nehemiah 8 and he says be of good cheer he said the joy of the lord is your strength and the lord kind of lifted me up you know from the ground and that and i just felt his goodness it's his goodness that leads us to repentance it wasn't the judgment. It wasn't the ticket. It wasn't that. I mean, his mercy was all in that. It was his goodness. It was when he said, rise up, be of good cheer. I'm, I love you. I'm for you. Get up. It was his goodness. That's what restored me. That's what brought me back. That's what makes me say, Lord, I want to do what's right in your sight. It's not the judgment. It's the goodness. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. But the rationale of the moralist is that God's not going to judge my sin. He hasn't done anything about it yet. I waited five minutes and he didn't strike me down. So he must approve. Bad logic. You're missing the boat, Paul says. What's the reality of the situation for the hypocrite or this self-righteous person? He says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. He says to us here very clearly, very pointedly, he says you're storing up wrath against yourself, that God is keeping track, that everything that you do, every word that you say, even down to the thoughts that you think, everything is being recorded by God and he doesn't miss any of it. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, where it talks about the judgment and the books were being opened. Those that are unsaved, those that are unredeemed, it says that the books were opened and they were judged according to their works. That's exactly what Paul is talking about right here. Every word, every action, every thought is recorded and you will give account for every one of it. And it says that you're doing nothing but storing up wrath for yourself. You think that you're okay with God. You think he doesn't see or that he doesn't care, but he says you're storing up wrath and he will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. He is absolutely without prejudice. He doesn't look at one race and judge them differently than another. He doesn't look at one age and judge them differently than he does another. That all people are on an even playing field before God. And he will render righteous judgment to everyone according to their deeds. And the conclusion, obviously, unspeakably, is that all are guilty before God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now, this is interesting thought because people ask the question, you know, what about the guy on the island? What about the guy who, you know, never heard, was never told? Well, Paul says here that if you have sinned without the law then you'll also perish without the law. You'll be judged according to that law. Because as he he said back in chapter 1, your conscience and creation give you enough light that you should know what's right and wrong, and you'll be judged according to what you know. You'll be judged according to the light that you have. And God's judgment is righteous judgment, that he'll be perfectly fair in that judgment. So if you violated the laws of creation outwardly and the tugging of your conscience inwardly, then you'll be judged and condemned according to the light that you've received but he says, if you've sinned in the law, as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. That if you know the law, if you know the word, if you know what God requires and you yet violate that, then you will be held even to a higher standard because you knew what was right. It was given to you plainly, and yet you ignored it or rationalized it or made excuses for it. And God says, you're without excuse. You'll be judged by the law. For not, the, And then he explains in verses 13 through 15, he kind of explains what he means by this sinned without the law. It's in parentheses, if you notice there in your Bibles. He says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which don't have the law do by nature the things contained in the law these having not the law are a law unto themselves in other words he's saying these gentiles they don't even have they don't have the bible they're not sitting in the synagogue they didn't have this delivered to them but yet they have a conscience at work within their heart that testifies within their mind what is right and what is wrong and if they obey it then they're fulfilling the righteousness of the law even though they don't have the written thing put down for them there on paper It says in verse 15 that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Now, when God gave the law to the, to the world, literally in Exodus chapter 20, he told Moses, go down the mountain and tell the people not to touch it, go down the mountain and just hold the people back. He said, and then it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse one, that God spoke. And he spoke loud enough that from the bottom of the mountain, the people could hear. And and there's history that says that when God spoke the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai there in Exodus 20, it was loud enough that everybody in the whole world heard it in their own language. There's accounts recorded of other civilizations and other places hearing the things that God spoke from Mount Sinai. That the law that was uttered by God as he spoke it in the same fashion that when God said, let there be light and light appeared, when God gave the law from the top of Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, something happened within the heart of men that that law was written there. And that's why no matter where you go or who you talk to and you ask somebody, is it right to steal? They know intuitively, innately written within them that no, it's not right to steal. That when you ask someone, is it right to, you know, dishonor your parents or is it right to no? everybody kind of has these things as a general guideline within them. Where did that come from? It came from Exodus chapter 20, because when God speaks and says, light be what happens? Light happens. When God says, Lazarus come forth, what happens? Lazarus comes forth. And when God says it is wrong to steal, what happens in the heart of his creation? that you know intuitively, innately, that it is wrong to steal. So the Gentiles, that's what he's saying in verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or excusing one another. In other words, their thoughts in their mind and the law in their heart are having a relationship with each other that people are thinking about what they know is right and wrong, and then they're acting on what they understand through their conscience and through their mind. You all with me? (laughs) And And then they're either accused by that, that they're guilty, or they're excused because they're doing what's right. They don't even have the law, but yet they're doing what's right and wrong. The Gentile, the person who doesn't even have the law. And that's how they'll be judged. They'll be judged according to what they do with what they know, even the thing that's written on their heart, that they don't understand how it got there. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Now, the key phrase in that verse is Jesus Christ. That he will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, here's what the point is, because God is the judge, right? What does a judge do? A judge opens up the law. And then he compares the deed done with the law recorded. And then he makes a assessment of either guilt or innocence. And then he declares a sentence, but the measurement is the law, right? He's measuring the behavior by the law. And what Paul is saying here is that the measuring standard is Jesus Christ. That he will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In other words, the standard of God's righteousness What God accepts as acceptable behavior is measured by Jesus Christ. Now, that's not good. You know why? Because Jesus was perfect. And because Jesus was perfect, that means you don't have a whole lot of room for error. (laughs) Remember when you were in high school or college and the professor thought he would just give you that sickly, insanely difficult test the one that nobody could pass and like the high score in the class was like a 60, you know, because it was just that hard. And so nobody in the class passes the test, right? And, and, and so he says, well, I'm going to judge you on a curve. We're going to grade it on a curve. And what the curve means is that 60 becomes 100 because, you know, that's the highest score. So if you got a 60, you actually got 100. So that means if you got a 55 on this test, A plus, baby. Because, man, that you just, you just made out good because of the curve on this horribly insane test. A lot of people think that God is going to judge according to the curve. Well, no, I wasn't perfect, but I was better than that guy. You know, hey, a 60 isn't bad when you look at humanity these days. I mean, what are you going to do? Here's the problem with that. Is that even when you were in college, in high school, there was that one person, right? Irwin or, you know, something. That one guy that got a 95 on the test anyway. And you're like, ah, you know, he just ruined it for me. You know, I was one guy away from getting a 95 on this thing, but now I'm stuck with a 60. Listen, Jesus is that guy. He's the guy that ruins the curve, because if God is going to use Jesus as the standard of righteousness, and he's going to measure the secrets of men, the things that you think or do that nobody else knows about, and he's going to measure all of that according to Jesus Christ, guess what? There ain't no curve and you will be accountable for what you did in accordance with who he was, not with what everybody else was. And that's why if you judge others or compare yourself with others or measure your standard of righteousness by others, you can't win because God's not going to judge you against others. He's going to judge you against Christ. And unless you meet that standard, you fail. And so Paul concludes his assessment of these moralist people, these hypocritical, judgmental people, and he says that you're guilty because you're judging the wrong person. You need to judge Christ. See, when you talk to people and say, why don't you become a Christian? They'll say, because Christians are hypocrites. Christians are this. The church is full of charlatans. The church is ripping people off. Listen, yeah, I know that. I've been in the church for a long time. You're right. But what's wrong with Jesus? Jesus said bless those that curse you. Do you have a problem with that? No. Okay, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Do you have a problem with that? No. Well, you're judging the wrong thing. You're saying Christian's church, Christian church. Listen, what about Jesus? Do you have a problem with Jesus? That's who you need to be judging yourself against. Can you measure up to that standard? And they can't. But Paul moves on and he begins talking about the Jew. In verse 17, he says, "Behold, thou art called a Jew, So now he's speaking to the religious person. And he begins to identify them. How does he identify the Jew? The religious person, the person who's trusting in religion to save them. Can the person who's trusting in religion be saved? Behold, you are called a Jew. The first thing that identifies this group of people is that they have a name. You are called a Jew. I'm a Methodist. Or, just to be fair, I go to Calvary Chapel. I'm a Calvary Chapelite, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Catholic or I'm a Lutheran or I'm a whatever, you know, and people, they, they have this name. And so you are called and and all of a sudden, when you have that name, you're putting something forth as though, well, this is how you can identify my morality, my righteousness. You can know that I'm a godly and upright person because of my name. Listen, the name means nothing. When Jesus was speaking to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he talked to the church, I think it was Sardis, and he looked at them and he said, look, you have a name as though you live, but you're dead. You can go for a long time on a name. You can take a chicken, right? And you can chop off its head and you can set it on the ground and it will run around like it's got a name, but that thing's dead. There's no life left in that chicken at all. And there's a lot of people that have a name as though they're alive. But yet they've cut off the head, Jesus being the head of the body. And they're still running around making a lot of noise, but they're dead. Because they're just resting in a name. You are called a Jew, he said, and you rest in the law. You have a creed. So not only do you have a name, but you also have a creed. You have a list of things that you profess and that you believe. You rest in the law and you make your boast of God, your claim. You have a claim that you know God. So you have a name, you have a creed, you have a claim. And then in verse 18, he says, and you know his will. You also have knowledge, you're taught. So these people, you can see, they're in big trouble. Because they're not like the heathen who has nothing, just conscience and creation. They're not like the hypocrite who's got this weird, twisted moral scheme. But these people have something. They know the law. They know what God's will is. They know God's standard. And you approve the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So you have a name, you have a creed, you have a claim, you have knowledge, and you have confidence, and you are an instructor. You are one that also thinks that you are qualified to lead others to a place of truth and salvation. So this is the identifying mark of the religious person, that they have all of these things, but they also have a very big problem. And that's given to us there in verse 21. He says, you therefore, you that have all of these things, which teach another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. That's what Paul says to this people that are claiming to be righteous based on their religious standing. Now, listen, understand that Paul is not talking to saved people here. He's talking to people that are trusting in their religion. They're trusting in their, you know, Methodist upbringing or they're, they're, you know, being brought up in the church and that they have this name that they've been given this religious foundation in their life. And they're trusting in that to be their source of salvation. They're not trusting in Christ. They haven't yielded to his righteousness but they're trusting in their own morality and seeking to make, make it to God, make it to heaven based on what they're doing, what they've done, and how they measure up. And Paul says, listen, you're preaching all of these things, but are you living it? And they're all rhetorical questions because the obvious answer to all of them is that no, you're not. He concludes by saying that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of your hypocrisy. You're claiming to be righteous. You're claiming to have all of these qualifications, but yet your life doesn't measure up with what you're claiming. You're saying that you're a guide of the blind. You're saying, follow me. But yet what you're doing with your life is, I remember all the people that witnessed to me in high school. I would watch their lives. They were all brought up in the church and they'd invite me to their youth groups. But yet I'd run into them on the weekend and they'd be carrying a keg in one hand, smoking a cigarette with the other on their way to a party. And I'd say, wait a minute, what about, what you were telling me about God. And I remember the guy, he goes, it's the weekend, bro. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's that how it works. But I knew, I knew I went up to another one. This guy witnessed me all the time, trying to get me to come to come to God, come to God, come to God. And he's telling me about how he was sleeping with this girl. And I said, well, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? I mean, I thought you weren't supposed to do that. I'm not a Christian, and I know that you're not supposed to do that. So don't you know that you're not supposed to do that? And he said, well, he goes, I made a covenant with God about this one girl. And I said, really? God's into bargains, huh? I knew that that wasn't right, but I just could say, pfft. It gave me the excuse. God, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of what you're doing. That's what Paul says to them there in verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Now that's heavy. I hope there's no one here tonight that the name of God is blasphemed because of you. Because of something that you're doing because you call yourself a Christian And something that you're doing in your life and you're giving someone else an excuse to say, see, that God thing is just a crutch. It's not real. It's just something that they do superstitiously to ease their conscience. But they don't even take it seriously themselves. That's why David got in trouble with God. That's what Nathan went on to say to David. He said, David, you've given an opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. This is not a good thing that you're doing. For circumcision verily profiteth, verse 25, if you keep the law, but if you be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now, circumcision to the Jew was the identifying mark. That was what made you a Jew. It's what made the Jew different from everybody else in the world is that they were circumcised. So when Paul is talking about circumcision here, he's equating it with the fact that they were Jews or the name, what they're calling themselves And basically what he's saying that that for for the name, for being a Jew, being a Christian, if you would, being a Methodist, being a Baptist, being a Lutheran, being a Catholic, being a Calvary Chapelite, being circumcised, verily profiteth, if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. If you break the law and you dishonor God and God is blasphemed because of what you're doing, then what you call yourself or what you are by identity doesn't make any difference at all. Therefore, if, and notice that word, if it's so important, changes everything. If the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Same thing we were talking about a minute ago with the guy who just has conscience. He's not, he doesn't call himself a Christian. He just does what's right. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law. And that's why that word if is so important back in verse 26, because nobody keeps the law. He's not saying that there are actually those people out there that really do. He's saying if it were to happen, and it doesn't happen, that's where he's going with all of this. But verse 28, he says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. He's saying that the whole religion thing, no matter what you call yourself is not outward. It's not in names and in creeds and in claims and in knowledge and in confidence and in what you do leading others and all of that he's in all of that is just the outcropping of it the reality is is it real in your heart and in your life circumcision isn't outward in the flesh it's something that takes place in the heart is god a reality in your heart is jesus alive within your life that's what's going to make everything else real otherwise it's just wearing a t-shirt somebody said one time going to church makes you as much of a christian as going to mcdonald's makes you a cheeseburger It's true. It's not about what you call yourself or where you go. It's about what's going on within your life. And Paul's case that he's making against the religious person is that if they're trusting in their religion to save them, if they're trusting in their faithful church attendance or their service record in ministerial functions, he's saying that you fall short because it's not about what you do outwardly. It's about what's going on inwardly. The thief that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus had never taught a Sunday school class. He'd never led anybody to the Lord. He'd never attended a church service. He'd never listened to a single teaching that Jesus gave. He simply said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise because something happened in that man's heart that was more real than the most self-righteous Pharisee that was living in Israel in those days because the living God moved into his heart and took residence within his life. And the righteousness that that man had in that dying breath that he was taking exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Paul is saying, that's what matters. We were supposed to get through the end of chapter 3. We did not. We got through the end of chapter 2. The worship team can come. And we'll conclude our section on... the sinfulness of man in our next time. Father, we pray that as we look into this perfect word, this word of life, Lord, as Paul shows to us, Lord, our our standing before you, Lord, that we're altogether unworthy and unrighteous, Lord, that we're corrupt from the top of the head to the sole of the foot, Lord, that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. That our hearts, Lord, are quick to judge and condemn others. That our ways, Lord, are filled with hypocrisy and corruption. Lord, you said it was inevitable that offenses would come. Lord, you knew that we would be stumbling others, that our behavior would at times give people a reason to blaspheme. But Lord, as we look at this thing, we're all convicted. Lord, we fall short of the glory of God. And Lord, we know we need Jesus. We need Jesus to be our substitutionary atonement. We need the blood, Lord, to wash us afresh. Lord, we need to repent, Lord, of our outward works. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us where we have tried to use our morality to justify other areas of sin. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us where we've reused a religious veil to cover up an emptiness of a lack of God in our lives within. Lord, we pray you'd help us. Lord, that you would strengthen and refresh us. That you'd renew us, Lord. And that you'd give us again that grace. Like David prayed, Lord, as he repented of that great sin and he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Maybe you're here tonight And you don't know Jesus Christ personally. You struggle with these things. Your head hits the pillow at night. And you think about, you know, where am I going to go when I die? What does God think about my life? Where is my right standing before Him? Does, Does He see me? Am I accepted? Well, listen, if you're trusting in chance, or you're trusting in the fact that you're better than the other guy and that God will let you in on a curve or if you're trusting in the fact that because God hasn't judged your behavior yet, that somehow that that makes you okay. Listen, you're in for a big surprise. Because you're going to find that those things do nothing but condemn you before God. You're without excuse. You have nothing before Him. But the gift of God is that He left heaven and He became a man. And then He hung on a cross and He absorbed all of the punishment for your sin. That means every thought, every action, every word of sin that you committed against God was transferred from your record onto Him. And that if you will come to God and confess that you're a sinner, that you've sinned and you've come short of His glory, that God will meet you there at the cross, and He'll lift away the guilt of your sin, and He'll give to you His very righteousness. He's willing to do that. But it's up to you to come to him. It's up to you to realize your need and to make that deal, that transaction with God, where you trade your sin for his righteousness through the blood of his son. And listen, there is no other way for you to be saved. You can do that tonight. You can come to Christ and be saved. You can be completely forgiven, completely washed, completely set free from the burden of guilt in the stain of your sin. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been trusting in your religion. You've been trusting in your self-righteousness, your service towards God. The name that you call yourself, the religion that you were brought up in, the creed that you've held on to since the youth, that you claim. You say, well, I was born this and I'll die this. Listen, you need to let go of that because that creed is enough to send you to hell. Because there is only one way that you can be saved. There is only one way that a man or a woman can be justified before Almighty God. And that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's available. It's freely available to any that would come. Let's all stand.